Welcome to episode 26 of the Listening Brain Podcast. Welcome to the Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. Hi, it's Todd Houston again. I want to let you know that the 3C Digital Media Network continues to add new webinars and other content almost every day. So please go to the website at 3C Digital Media Network dot com and check out what we have to offer. In fact, I've just uploaded two new webinars about working with kids with hearing loss. So go over, check out those webinars. If you like what you see, go ahead and take one of them and then recommend it to your peers. We'd really, really appreciate it. We also have a new webinar from Stacy Kraus who is just a phenomenal presenter. She also deals with hearing loss as well as working with other kids that have other diagnoses. So check out our new webinar from Stacy Krause, too. So again, check us out, 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com, and see what we have to offer. Now, let's get back to the interview. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing Linda Daniel. Linda is a board-certified, licensed audiologist and listening and spoken language specialist, certified auditory verbal therapist with over 45 years' experience in the field. She earned a bachelor's degree in speech and hearing science from the University of Iowa, a master's degree in audiology from the University of Denver, and a master's degree in communication disorders from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. In her graduate education, Linda focused on oral rehabilitation, language development, and human information processing. She's the owner of Here in Dallas, a private practice in which she provides oral rehabilitation services to individuals of all ages around the world. Via telehealth, she provides her services to individuals with hearing loss living in diverse cultures as well. It is my pleasure to welcome Linda to the podcast. Linda, welcome to the podcast. Can you give us a little more information about your background and how you got into auditory verbal therapy, listening and spoken language services? Sure, I would be happy to. Thank you for having me. Well, it goes back to when I was four years old. Wow. And uh, my brothers were in school, and I was sitting in the living room and pondering life and communication. And I started wondering how I can think a thought and move my mouth, and then you can hear the thought that was in my head. Hmm. And I've, I've been interested in the mystery of communication literally since before I went to kindergarten. Wow. And um, it was, I was never around any deaf people. I wasn't 
bred to think this way. I just always thought this way. Um, and I would experiment, duh, duh, oh, oh, er, er, door, door, door. <laughs> and I just was fascinated by how words that had meaning were broken down into sounds that our mouth produced and people could hear them. And just literally that whole process has fascinated me since my earliest memories. Mm-hmm. Um, I just happened to be born in Iowa mm-hmm. and my older brother went to the University of Iowa. So I went there just because I was following him, not knowing it was the original audiology program and a hotbed for all kinds of speech and hearing research. So I was very fortunate to study under the a lot of the founders of the field at the time because I was there in the early 70s. Um, and so, you know, I had speech science, hearing science and psycholinguistics from a lot of the uh, forerunners in those fields. Um, then I knew I wanted to teach deaf children to speak, so to speak. And I knew I didn't want to go into clinical audiology. And at the time, Julia Davis, who was, again, one of the very first oral rehab uh, people, she was at Iowa. So I told her, you know, I was interested in rehab audiology. So she, you know, suggested there were only three universities at the time uh, that even addressed it. And uh, I picked the University of Denver because I love the mountains and I love to ski. Little did I know that Doreen Pollock was just a half a mile from DU. So I went through the DU audiology program, which you could say had a rehab emphasis, but you know, audiology wasn't a very developed field back then. Um, And so I, I took sign and I, you know, took a practicum in oral for some of the oral kids in their preschool. I took a practicum in total communication because they had a TC class. So I had an overview, I would say, of, um, of pediatric oral rehab. And then I heard about this woman that, you know, so to speak, teaches the blind to see and the deaf to hear, um, you know, and that she was putting on a, a solid, a solid week workshop. And, um, I was told that, you know, since I already knew sign and was able to do that with kids, this would give me a whole different angle. Um, I I wasn't told really what she did, but I was just, it was recommended. So I went and needless to say, you know, my world changed. Um, You know, she stood on stage for an entire week, starting with tiny babies. She did therapy on stage, starting with infants, and going all the way up to college kids. And she would flash their audiograms, <clears throat> their aided, unaided and aided audiograms on a slide. Mm-hmm. And, and then she would stand behind them and carry on conversations with them. And it just made no sense. You know, she would show these 100, 110, 115 decibel hearing losses, aided 60, 65, and yet she was conversing with them standing behind them. So I just, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps telling (laughs) you about it. It was, it was transformational, Mm -hmm. obviously. Mm -hmm. And so I sat down with her at the end of the workshop and I said, Doreen, um, I'm scheduled to start um, an oral rehab program uh, at the university of Oklahoma health sciences center, children's hospital. And I've only had one week of your class what advice do you have for me? 
she said, that's fine. Just start with a child that has plenty of residual hearing. She said, don't start with a really profound child. She said, get your feet wet on children that have a moderate, moderate to severe loss. And so I did. And, and of course, they started talking very quickly. Um, fortunately, they did not have associated disorders. Um, and so then, per her advice, I started taking kids that were more severe in the profound range. And, um, and after two years of doing that, I realized that as an audiologist, I did, ha- I did not have enough knowledge about language development and language disorders. And so I left and I went to the University of Wisconsin at Madison because they, at the time, they were very well known for their language development and language disorders uh, program and research. So I went there, got a master's in, in speech and hearing, speech path. And um, while I was there, I happened upon their cognitive psych department. And I knew Doreen always talked about the dominant sense and the weak sense, and we have to reduce the uh, stimulation of the dominant sense in order for the brain to focus on the weak sense. And I wanted to be able to explain that in um, in a very professional way. And so I took some courses in cognitive psych, particularly human information processing, which dealt with that. How does the brain use senses together or does one when does one sense inhibit the other and when can a sense facilitate the other so i really uh wanted to get grounded in in human information processing as the foundation for doing auditory verbal therapy during doing language development etc uh the other beauty of wisconsin is that they were very adamant about following normal development, Mm. even if it meant what I call the tissue paper thin stages Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of of speech, language, audition of anything in development. And that that particular background of, of having normal development as my model, that's how I started working with a lot of children with multiple disabilities. And people would say, well, how do you know what to do with him? What do you do with this child? He doesn't look at you. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't imitate you. And I just said, normal development. Right. What's the very first step that I want from this child? And I might work on it for six months right. and start to see inklings of it. Mm-hmm. And I just pursued that normal developmental model. Um, and that's what really, uh, uh, I would say, allowed us to see outcomes we never expected from a lot of the children with multiple disabilities. Um, So that, I think that tells you my Mm -hmm. uh, personal background and my academic background and how I wove all of that together into uh, AV. So you were extremely well prepared for a life in auditory verbal. I, I very fortunate to say I was, and, um, Yes, I had the basic sciences from Iowa. I had, you know, basically, I would say some clinical audiology and a little rehab from Denver, and then this very strong developmental and cognitive psych background from Wisconsin. So with with Doreen uh, being in Denver, as well as uh, Mary and Ernst, 
another great pioneer in the field. How was it, you know, what was it like just sort of being in the room with them and just letting them coach you as a young professional? How did that dynamic sort of happen? First of all, I want to totally thank you for mentioning Marion. I did not intend to leave her out. She was a pivotal, pivotal person in my professional development and is still a very good friend to this day. Mm -hmm. She's an incredible person. Um, I did not actually work with Doreen. I worked at her facility after she left and when Robbie McDonough Mm. had taken over. Um, But Marion was still there. So I had a lot of contact with her. There were about Mm. a half a dozen of us um, um, that were all kind of developing in this at the same time, Nancy Kalefi Skank and Robbie McDonough. And, uh, you know, there were Meredith Stewart there, you know, there's about a half a dozen of us. And I just remember, you know, I don't know how it sort of worked out, but we'd end up at Marion's house and kind of like the, the, um, the, the people sitting at the feet of the guru, like in India, you picture the, the guru sitting there and everybody else on the floor in a little semicircle I mean, that's what my memory is. I don't know if we really sat in a semicircle, but it was that feeling that the master Mm -hmm. is speaking and we, we'd be there till 12 or one at one in the morning. We, cause Marion loves to tell stories. One said one question and Oh, Mm. that reminds me, you know, so then we'd hear about a particular child years ago that, um, you know, that really, didn't fit the mold and what she did to uh, have that kid come around. Now, Marion is interesting because she was dual certified speech path and audiology. Mm -hmm. And she also started out as a regular ed teacher. And she says that it's her experience teaching children without impairments that gave her her vision for children with hearing loss and children with hearing loss and other disorders. Because Marion, whenever any child would come to her, you know, Marion, there's a speech contest. There's, you know, uh, this presentation contest. Do you think I should go out for it? Why not? Always. Why not? You know, and she always gave those kids literally limitless vision of themselves. So I always say that Doreen, I I learned from Doreen how to teach those early stages of listening and speech. Mm-hmm. And I learned from Marion um, that vision of always mm-hmm. have a, a, an open, unended vision of every child, no matter how many multiple disabilities, how many disabilities the child has. In your mind, just keep the sky is the limit and just keep mm-hmm. working toward it and give them all kinds of opportunities to try and fail and try again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Doreen gave me the basics of auditory mm-hmm. verbal. And, and again, not really from her, but by from her workshops. And yeah. I don't know if you remember those five A.G. Bell tapes. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you how many times I watched those. <laughs> and I can still see her with the little plastic thing with making the zoo cages with the animals. Right. In it. I mean, I was just I just wanted to absorb everything I could. And that's about all there was back then. Right. For right. videos. So, um, 
Yes, that's what I did. I had Doreen's workshop, which was spellbinding um, mm-hmm. because of the profound nature of those kids and what they were doing. And then her videos and then knowing Marion. And I used mm-hmm. to actually go to the IEP meetings with Marion and I mm-hmm. would just sit back and be incredulous. She would just so easily say, okay, now, now this child needs to be taken out of science, social studies and health. <laughs> and I want her to have three hours of language arts every day. And I, and she would just very sweetly, very calmly command the room. Mm-hmm. And um, granted, this child was in a in a school district where they were they were accepting of of what she was proposing. Um, mm-hmm. But to me, it was just the most radical thinking, mm-hmm. and she just so clearly said it. And she would always say, and these were kids without implants. You know, they were struggling at seven, eight, nine with language. Right. You know? Right. Uh, and she would say, once they learn language, they can learn any academic content area. But if they don't have their language in place, they're never going to make it in those content areas. So, yes, uh, both Doreen and Marion were just, you know, they were my foundation. They were both visionary, brilliant, visionary, limitless in their thinking about children. Oh, it's, you know, they they certainly have a legacy. and. Not only the lives that they've touched in terms of the children they've worked with, but just being mentor, a mentor to so many people. Uh, it's been uh, just a wonderful thing to see in the field. Yes. Um, I think it was two years after Doreen taught her week-long workshop, Marion taught a workshop on uh, the school-age child. And so wherever I was at the time, I flew to Denver and took that. So she went through all of the things she did to teach reading, to remediate reading problems. Um, and that was that was invaluable also to get that education component. Right. So you had this wonderful sort of mentoring growth experience in Denver. And, and then... Take us from there, because now you're in Texas. And so let's fill in those gaps from Denver to Texas. Well, Denver to Texas is a very interesting gap. (laughs) Because when I was living in Denver, um, I had a small private practice. And I made the, the reason I went to Wisconsin was I wanted to understand cognitive science. I wanted to be able to explain what I was seeing in these kids two professionals. And so from my earliest days, really before my Wisconsin graduate program was even over, I was submitting proposals to the state speech, Wisconsin state speech and hearing, mm-hmm. AAA, ASHA, AG Bell. So for a, probably a good 20, mm-hmm. 25 years, whenever I would see a call for papers, I would get out my video camera and put together a program I used to call it an auditory processing approach to, you know, speech and language development, because I really wanted to hit that notion that it's an auditory processing approach. Yes, we're putting hearing aids on. Yes, we're getting better audiograms. But what are we really doing? We're teaching the brain to process sound and particularly spoken language. So um, 
So for about a 25 year period, any time a call for papers would come out, I would head to a conference and I'd have a suitcase full of clothes and a suitcase full of VHS tapes Mm -hmm. all set for where I want. I'd have probably 25 or 30 VHS cassettes. (laughs) So I'd ask for an overhead projector. So I'd have my little Mm -hmm. acetate Mm -hmm. models. And then I had my VHS player there. And I have never to this day spoken at any conference without videotapes. Because I I took a human a personal growth course at one point, and they said you can't convince anything of anybody. You can convince anybody of anything, but they mm-hmm. can convince themselves. Uh, that's a, that's interesting. Yeah, they can change their own mind. So I thought, mm-hmm. and you know how hot the whole debate about sign and covering sure. your mouth. So I knew that just getting up there and saying, "Oh, you can teach deaf kids to hear with your, without vision," I knew I'd be laughed out of the room. So I, mm-hmm. I never told him that. I just said, we're going to talk about an auditory processing approach to oral rehab. And these are some of the stages. We're going to talk about attention. And then we're going to talk mm-hmm. about awareness, attention, sustained attention, mm-hmm. auditory memory, identifying the auditory input, associating mm-hmm. it with meaning, sequencing sounds, auditory feedback. So I literally just went through what I call my 10 auditory processes. Um, And then I showed severely profoundly deaf kids in therapy doing those specific types of auditory processing uh, activities. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you know, first it was just the kids that weren't speaking. They were just responding to sound. And then gradually, and then toward the end, they were, you know, reading, writing, doing math and verbal math problems. And so... People got to see with their own eyes severely and profoundly deaf children processing spoken language, learning to talk, and learning their academic skills. And yeah, so that's, that's awesome. It turned out to be very effective. Oh yeah. Um, and so so they they did with it with it what they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I remember walking through a AAA um, hallway one day and a woman stopped me and she said, are you Linda Daniel? I said, yeah. She said, I saw you 20 years ago at ASHA with your videos. She said, and that, that presentation changed my career. Wow. It's because it, she changed her mind. Right, right. She saw something she didn't know about. Mm-hmm. And she decided mm-hmm. she wanted to go down that track. So this is a long way of saying I did a lot of presenting with videos mm-hmm. all over the place. Wherever there was a conference, I'd go, which meant that audiologists and speech pathologists all over the country started seeing this stuff. So mm-hmm. then they would diagnose a child in East Glacier, Montana or Portland, Oregon right. or Chicago and tell the parent there's this person in Denver that does this uh, approach. So just Mm -hmm. sight unseen, I'd get phone calls from wherever we want you to come and help us with our child. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, back then everything was safe. You never thought anything of it. So I would just pack it all up. And, and uh, usually that mom would know several moms in the area. So they'd get two hotel rooms, one for me and one to set up a therapy room 
and they would set the schedule and I'd be there for four or five days and I'd come with my bag of clothes and my bag of toys and I would have these little mini clinics all around the country. Yeah. And, um, and it it was great. You know, sometimes I'd stay in their homes. I stayed in the home of a family that I realized was in a cult and I saw, (laughs) I saw the cult. Hold on. (laughs) Time out. So what, what was the, what was the cult? Oh gosh, I don't know the name. I mean, I do know the name of the woman. I don't know if you want me to say it or not. Um, no. Anyway, I eventually saw it on TV where they'd been they'd been busted by the federal government and had all these underground weapons and mm. and everything. And wow. Uh, and you know, back then I was fearless. I was trusting. And I stayed in a cult. I stayed in Malibu in beautiful homes. I stayed on North Lakeshore Drive in Chicago. Uh, I stayed in the mountains at East Glacier Park, Montana. And I saw the I saw the U.S. as a as a individual therapist going out there, taking it out there. And that's um, really that's really incredible. I, I thought you were going to tell me you were with the Manson family for a little <laughs> while there. <laughs> that was a little before your time there. But yeah, that's that's really incredible. I've I've done that a couple of times, not not often, uh, where a family would contact me and you know I would go and visit and you know work with their child and give some recommendations, that kind of thing, more as a second opinion kind of thing. Um, but you really sort of had a circuit going. You were really uh, out there with lots of different families all over the country. Yeah. So I'd go to each of those cities maybe every six months, every four months, you know. And and while I was there, I would go to the preschools and talk to the director and say, we have this child with hearing loss. We want them in the normal preschool. Here's why. And um, I would just kind of set the, I might find an OT or, you know, specific people in the community that, you know, had what the child needed. So I would kind of set up the whole thing uh, when I would go. Uh, So one day um, I was in my apartment in Denver and I got a call from a woman in Texas, in Dallas. And she said that she had called Dan Ling and asked if he had a student that could come to Dallas and work with her child. And he said, no, but there's somebody in Denver who goes around to other cities, you might want to contact her. So um, I said, somehow he knew how to get a hold of me. I don't know how, but so he told her how to get a hold of me. So sitting in Dallas, sitting in my apartment Mm -hmm. in Denver, got a call from a mom in Dallas saying that she and another mom wanted me to come to Dallas. So, so for two years, I came in here about Mm -hmm. every eight Mm -hmm. to 10 weeks. And then through this one particular audiologist that grew to nine children. Wow. Yeah. That's so then crazy. I was coming and staying for seven days, nine days, 10 days. And um, I just had my bag of toys and they, you know, give me a car and I would just drive from family to family. And I just had my little gig going here. Mm-hmm. Um, after two years of that, the mom that originally had called me, was driving me to the airport and she was a, she's a very straightforward woman. So we were just driving along, nothing <laughs> being said. She said, you don't want to move here, do you? 
And I said, oh, well, I don't know. What are you thinking? She said, well, you have whatever it was, seven or nine kids. And she said, and I know five more. She said, you have a see each twice a week. You've got a full private practice here if you want it. And I said, hmm, sounds good. Because De- Denver was mm-hmm. pretty saturated. There was me and Robbie and Nancy Kalefi-Skank and Mary Moser right. Davis. You know, there were too many of us in Denver. And it was right, right. a great opportunity to start a new city. So I went home, packed up my worldly belongings in my little Buick Skylark, drove down, <laughs> drove to Dallas. And, mm-hmm. um, and that was in late 88. So uh-huh. I had already started developing AV for about two years in Dallas. And then one day in 89, the phone rang. Hello, this is Dr. Robert Peters. You and I share a mutual child. Uh, Her mother tells me what you're doing with deaf children. I'm so glad to know this because I want to start doing cochlear implants. And from that phone call to this day, I have done, you know, we've developed an incredible relationship. And of course, with the audiologists and and now we brought on our psychologist. And so together, Dr. Peters and I, developed obviously he developed the uh the medical and audiology department and then i mm-hmm. became the rehab uh person um and so since his first implant in the early 90s he's referred every single child and then eventually adult and so i've been working with a lot of adults over the last 10 to 15 years right right i do re- I remember you and I chatting about the adult work you've done. Yeah. Um, and so is, is Dr. Peter still practicing? He is. He is. He is. And if, you know, it's just an interesting story because unbeknownst to him and me, I was preparing Dallas for AV. He was doing his residency mm-hmm. with Dr. Maddox at the, at the Houston Ear Research Foundation during the investigational period. Um, I moved here November 88. He moved here in 89. And then just by chance, so to speak, this child that I was seeing started going to him. He found out about the program I was doing. And that's been 30 years now. And the rest is history. The rest is history. So so you have uh, here in Dallas. Yes. And then that's the, what, the Dallas Ear Institute. Yeah. And then there's the foundation, correct? That's all right. So all these things have have sort of uh, evolved out of this relationship over the years. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Here in Dallas is my private practice. Dallas Ear Institute is the medical and audiology program. We're separate, but we're all one family. And then we started realizing in the late 90s that some children couldn't afford hearing aids, cochlear implants. And that's when Dr. Peters uh, filed to start a foundation. And we started, you know, with some local families that were needing it. And it didn't take long at all before internationally, people were finding us on the internet and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they started coming. And so you, we talked a little bit earlier before we started uh, this episode about what you've seen over the years and how your practice has changed and how the practice of listening and spoken language auditory verbal has changed. What 
what have you seen over the years? Well, I remember in the olden days um, doing about 20 hours of AV a week was enough to, you know, take all your energy. It was very hard back in the days of analog hearing aids, those low frequency boomer hearing aids. Uh, those children heard so little. It was exhausting doing an hour of therapy. And uh, so I remember a number, number of us therapists at the time saying, yeah, 20 is about it, you know, to uh, have any energy left. And um, also it was very difficult working with children with multiple disabilities because you just couldn't get much meaningful sound into them. And they had so many other problems. It was just so much harder to work. And it was already hard with a neurotypical child. Um, So number one, the number of hours of therapy a day, I can do so many more because Mm -hmm. they hear with their technology, with their cochlear implants. Mm -hmm. And I also find that it has, I, because you know, it's so obvious the amount of hearing kids have in terms of their improved thresholds. I think a lot more physicians are willing to implant children with multiple disabilities now. And so I feel that it's really opened up um, AV, oral rehab, all methods to more and more children with multiple disabilities because they can hear and right. so we can we can help them with one of the most critical senses that they're that they have deficit in. So I would say that another thing I would say is um, late identification, late implantation mm-hmm. is much more. Uh, I think the outcomes of late intervention are much more promising than if we were fitting a five-year-old with boomer low-frequency hearing aids. Now right. we can take a five-year-old, like I have a little boy from Nigeria right now that never had any technology and he just turned five and he's been activated for about probably 15 days or so. And because he's a smart, smart kid, he doesn't have associated disorders. His mom is just, just the uh, most motivated. She's taking the hearing first classes online. She's, you know, she's, Mm-hmm. educating herself in AV. Um, and I, I truly think this child is going to be a, 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 a very competent verbal speaker when he grows up, starting at age five. You know, I've started kids at age five that were neurotypical, had great family support. And by 12, 13, they were, they were really competent verbal speakers, fully, right. fully mainstreamed, et cetera. So, I think those are the three things, increased number of therapy sessions a day, uh, much greater access to better outcomes in children with multiple disabilities and much better outcomes for children implanted later than the, the early intervention concept. I think those are probably, and being allowing mothers to work. You know, I think the technology is so good now that, you know, in the olden days, moms would quit, you know, to, right. to stay home with their kids. And I see parents now, you know, two full-time jobs, you know, a nanny, you know, various preschools. And I think that the technology 
is allowing families to have mm-hmm. uh, much, uh, a lot more options. Right. And as you mentioned, with with like all of us sort of with COVID and having to do teletherapy as well, uh, how how has that experience gone with you? I know you were doing teletherapy before COVID. Um, how has that continued to sort of evolve in your practice? Yeah, so I, I did teletherapy with a handful of families around the world through our foundation for about six years before COVID came. And so I felt very fortunate because I could just start doing it with my locals. And once insurance approved it, uh, there's been some sticky things with insurance, but overall they were approving it. And um, I, I have found I have found that with the neurotypical kids, I feel it works really well. And, you know, it's just straight parent coaching. You're coaching them to have normal development in the child, normal auditory speech, language development, etc. I find it more challenging when the children when the children have other issues and they don't really engage well with the parent and they certainly right. don't engage with me on the screen. Um, so a couple of those early on, the parents found some people in town that were doing face-to-face therapy. Um, and so, you know, I totally agreed that that's what the child needed. I, I find that uh, teletherapy with, with the type of mom that can, that's willing to make some changes in her interactions, which I find most are, I've had one or two that just couldn't see themselves doing what we do. Um, And they wanted to kind of do nothing other than what they normally do, maybe do it a little more, but it really wasn't the teaching style that we typically train uh, parents and caregivers to have with their child, a real dialogue style, you know, turn-taking and a very do this, do this. Now we're going to do this. Now we're going to do this. So I would say that with the exception of a few mother's styles and with the exception of a few kids with associated disorders where they, they just didn't engage well, it's been very effective. It's been very effective. And I've been fortunate that our, kids that have come from other countries have not had associated issues. So I was able to follow that normal developmental track with the mom uh, in my coaching. Yeah. And I've, what I have seen is certainly the, the coaching model is built in, you know, you, you know, you sort of uh, have to do the coaching. And I, I think um, for some for some individuals, especially over the past year, um, I think there are lots of people, whether they're doing AV or not, but they were working in early intervention and working with children uh, at birth to three level. I think a lot of people who then got or had to do telepractice uh, realized that they probably weren't doing as much parent coaching <laughs> as they thought they were doing until that came along. And they were forced to do it. And then there was this scramble around how do I really coach parents when they thought, you know, just by going into the home and showing them some activities and then leaving that the parents would know how to do it. Uh, And I think uh, 
I think we saw a big change there in the whole parent coaching uh, aspect of this um, with telepractice. Yes, and I've gotten more refined at it myself. I tend to be a very um, hands-on therapist. I like to work with the kid. I like to say, okay, I'll do it. You do it. I'll do it. Okay, now mom do it. Okay, now I'm going to, because I like to probe and push and find Mm -hmm. how far I can get the kid to go on any particular goal before Mm -hmm. I, you know, say, okay, good. And then explain to the parent. So I'm a real hands-on therapist. Um, So teletherapy really uh, pushed me to my new (laughs) teletherapy coaching style. And I'm glad it did because it's been amazing. It's it's amazing uh, what a mom and child can do without coming, without leaving Mm -hmm. the house or leaving their country. (laughs) Sure. Sure. And, and and I, I certainly do acknowledge, like you said, uh, it it may not be for everybody. You know, uh, there are certain situations where you, you would prefer to be in person or, or be in person versus telepractice. But I think it, I think going forward, you know, I think the, the genie, the genie is out of the bottle, so to speak. And, and I think we'll continue to have just in general, more and more telehealth yes. services. And I think uh, telepractice and with auditory verbal and listening and spoken language will continue to be a, a huge area for families and practitioners as well. So it's it's been interesting to see that evolution over the years and this sort of adrenaline push that COVID gave it where um, it's now more available than it used to be. My, my concern has been that just in general with telepractice that we were sort of everyone had to just sort of jump in overnight and do it that, you know, first, you know, just people getting really the children and the families getting really terrible services because suddenly you had professionals who didn't really know what they were doing in terms of the telepractice component, because they'd never done it before. Um, and, and then I was a little concerned that, you know, families would say, oh, it doesn't work because, you know, this isn't working because the person just, you know, didn't have a lot of training. But I haven't seen a lot of that. I mean, in terms of now that we're a year post, so to speak, uh, I haven't seen a lot of that in terms of pushback from parents. I think uh, even the families I work with who are now starting to come back in to the our clinic, um, they, they kind of want to balance now. They want both. They want to come in sometimes and they also want to, they want to, you know, there are times when they're busy and they would rather just do, you know, telepractice because it fits better in the schedule and and that's fine. And so that's sort of where I think we'll evolve to is families will have choices and they can, you know, depending on the needs of the child, of course. But if, uh, like you're saying, if they're neurotypical, then if they want to come in, great. If not, then they can do telepractice. Yeah, and I also think if if our licensing borders open up more, I know mm-hmm. there are some states that are doing the reciprocity, um, but mm-hmm. I think the more that grows, right, then the more we can reach areas that don't have AV practitioners. Right, and I, th- there's this you know the new uh, compact mm-hmm. that's um, that now I guess more than ten states have joined it now, and so it's. I guess the uh, 
this next year they're setting up the guidelines. I can't remember if Texas has has passed that or not. not Probably not. Not to my knowledge. Uh, they're too worried about other things. Well, yeah. Plus, <laughs> from what I read in the news. <laughs> plus, you know, we're a country. You know that, don't you? I, I know. I know. <laughs> we'd have my, to we'd have to join the union to do that. <laughs> hey, my my ancestor, Sam Houston, would not be supportive of all the shenanigans that are going on. Anyway, <laughs> so you're um, so you're related. Apparently, so okay. that you know we've had the ancestry, you know, stuff that goes back. Uh, but yes, uh, his his family came out of basically western Carol- Western North Carolina into Tennessee, in which he you know became governor of Tennessee before he went to Texas. Um, so, long story short. My family, basically, going back generations, came out of Western North Carolina as well. So, um, apparently, somewhere along the way, back in the in the old days, we we had a common ancestor. So, my my one claim to any anyone famous in the family. Um, so, now that we uh, you've you've mentioned what's going on now in in Texas with, you know, your private practice and the foundation. As you take a step back and look at the field and you have new people coming into the field, what what advice would you give new practitioners who are just starting or who have an interest in, in listening and spoken language and they, and they really want to do this? Well, how would you guide them? I think it's a very tricky thing because Audiology, I believe, in general, has become so technical, so much assessment and technology, and really not um, focused on rehab. And I don't think most AUD programs have the type of auditory rehab training that we would think would be uh, appropriate. So they're not doing it. And then, as you know, many years ago, um, graduates of master's programs in speech path used to have requirements for oral rehab hours. I think it right. used to be 25 and then it was reduced mm-hmm. to 12 and then it was, I think it was reduced mm-hmm. to two for a while and then they took it, took it off. So mm-hmm. I think we have a really big problem with the two dominant fields, speech path and audiology, both of them at their highest levels, either a master's or an AUD are not training auditory development and audition as the basis of speech and language development. So I think we have a really big problem there. In the olden days, you could get two master's degrees and it wasn't that big a deal. Doreen was dual certified, Marion was dual certified. A lot of us, our original group, either had Mm -hmm. deaf ed and audiology or speech path and audiology. So a lot of us in yours and your and my generation had two degrees. Um, These days, you know, if you're going to get an AUD, you're probably not going to go back and get a speech path degree. Um, yeah. And if you get a, if you go into speech path, it's probably because you don't want to be an audiologist. Mm-hmm. So I feel there's um, a really big gap in professional training. And of course, we know there are a few universities that have an AR track or an AV track, but it's, I think probably you could count them on maybe one hand. Um, So 
when I have interns, either from audiology or speech path, when I have interns come and shadow me mm-hmm. and they get all excited, I want to do this, I want to do this, what can I do? You know, this is what my school offers. Mm-hmm. And I I usually say, you know, whenever you can take an elective, take it in the on the other side mm-hmm. and and be prepared for a lot of continuing education in, in right. any way that that might be. And fortunately now there's a lot more options to that. There weren't when we were um, starting mm-hmm. out, we had to fly right. and, you know, fly places and watch mm-hmm. people and we had to do it all on our own, which was mm-hmm. fine. It worked, but I'm just saying they have a lot more online options now to learn. And of course there's the mentoring program, the listening mm-hmm. spoken language mentoring program. So you know, I just tell them they have to really want it because you can't just go get it somewhere. You know, you, uh, un- unless, as we said, there are a few places that do it that have a- academic and clinical programs. But I think overall, they just need to know that it's truly a combination of of speech pathology, audiology, normal child development human psychology, child psychology, education, special education, um, you know, that they need to be aware that what they see in us, what we bring to it, we're not just sitting there playing with kids, but we have these multiple bodies of knowledge under our belt that we bring to every moment that we do with a child. And if they're that type of person, if they're intellectually curious, if they're, if they're driven inside because it's going to take that because they're going to have to find it here and find it there and put it together, um, you know, they can do it. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, you can't just go into speech path or audiology in general and come out well-trained in auditory development the audition is the foundation for communication, et cetera. I, I agree. And I, and I, with everything you just said, because it, it uh, you know, being here at Akron, they've, you know, we've had this long history with Denise Ray and Carol Flexer. And, uh, and so that's been wonderful that here's a university, a faculty who already, you know, have this knowledge and understand why we want to do this. But yeah, when I was trained at uh, my my master's degree at University of South Carolina, uh, it was back under those old ASHA standards of 20 hours, 25 hours of oral hab, and we were all scrambling to try to get those hours. And and but my you know I had a, a really good course in audiology and a in a course in oral habilitation that was more of a survey course, like all the different options and here's how you troubleshoot a hearing aid. You know, so there wasn't in in the actual formal training, you know, even though we had to get those 25 hours, it, it was, you know, maybe an AV kit or maybe not. Oh, More could, than likely it wasn't. Yeah, it could be anything. It was, yeah, it could be anything. You know, it was a lot of TC back then, you oh, know. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was, you know, I left there, although I, I think it was a very good program, you know, very good master's program. At the same time, I left needing more. Yeah. And I knew that. 
And so it was really like you were saying, it's the continuing education that we all had to do is going and sitting on the floor and watching and, and going to conferences and begging people to, you know, let them <laughs> let you come and, and look over their shoulder and uh, those kinds of things, unfortunately. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, so today I'm still, yeah, I'm, I'm really concerned, continue to be concerned because yeah, the, the way the ASHA uh, requirements are now you get child speech or child language, and it can be so many, you, know, you could, you could, go through your master's program in speech without ever seeing a kid with hearing loss because all of your child speech and child language hours were done with kids with autism or kids with, you know, other kids. So, yeah. So I think there's, there needs to be some changes there, whether it'll ever happen. I don't know because I'm sure others would want to argue why they need more training in this area or that area. You know, I think, you know, in terms of uh, speech language pathology, more than likely, we'll probably end up with a clinical doctorate at some point, because uh, it's there's, there's just not enough time with the scope of practice to, to do it all in a master's, you know, typical two-year program. So anyway, yeah. so yeah, I, I share your frustrations with all of that. And, uh, and fortunate, we, fortunately, we're doing, you know, AV here and telepractice, and so they're getting sort of a combination of the two. <laughs> Uh, built in uh, before they graduate, or many of the students do, not all of them. Um, and so we're trying to make a dent in that. And like you say, there's a handful of others that are out there doing some really good work with faculty that are trained. But uh, but yeah, the average student in audiology and speech is not going to know exactly or know very much at all about any of this. Yeah. And I've had so many interns say, how, do, how come I don't know about this? You know, this right. is amazing. Mm-hmm. I, I want to do this. What, is, what am I seeing here? What, what's going on here? I, I don't know anything about this, and I'm ready to graduate. Right. right. And I think the saddest part about it, when you look at children and adults, is that hearing loss is the num- number one contributor to a communication disorder. And it's the one mm-hmm. thing that nobody's being trained in. And it's just, it's just, it's hard for me to... Um, understand how it came to this right right yeah i think you know i think with asha it's it's always uh uh interesting uh dance <laughs> i guess i should say and just leave it at that yeah. uh of you know having this you know the national organization and then the state licensure and all of these requirements and right. again it's trying to get all these different areas yeah in levels of competency and, and, you know, it's just a, it's, it's just crazy, but yeah, I think, I think we're getting close to a breaking point or some point where we're going to have to just say time out. We got to do something different. And, and maybe at that point we can, you know, have a way to, to get a more specialization before they graduate, which is what I'm, I've always wanted them to do. Yes. So, Linda, thank you for your time today. It's been wonderful catching up and good luck and with everything that you're doing. I mean, you you continue to, you know, inspire and and you're continuing to sort of be this this uh this shining star there in Dallas and and a beacon for so many families and and professionals. So, I appreciate all that you're doing and good luck with everything. 
Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on. It's been really fun kind of looking at the field together and what we both know as a lot of the history. So I really appreciate it as well. Thank you again, Linda, for joining me on the podcast. It was wonderful to learn more about all the things that you're doing in Dallas and to learn more about your background and history in the field. It is just phenomenal. And thank you for all that you do, not only for your families and the children and the adults you work with, but for fellow professionals in the field like me who look up to you and and learn from you. So I really appreciate everything that you're doing. And with that, thank you for listening to this podcast. I've been on a little bit of a hiatus with this podcast. However, I promise to have new episodes every two weeks going forward. And uh, I apologize for that break over the summer. Just too many things happening at once, as we all can attest to. And with that, thank you again for listening. Leave us a five-star review. That always helps us attract new subscribers. And that's what we want to do. We want to share more of what we're learning to as many people as possible. Thanks again. I'll talk to you in two weeks. Be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network. Music